Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on August 2nd, 2018. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... What starts to happen is the quality of the science starts to erode. And the result, what we're seeing is a significant number of studies that get published aren't true. That's the familiar voice of Richard Harris. He's been on National Public Radio for three decades, covering science, medicine, and the environment. And he's the author of the book Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. We actually spoke in April 2017 when the book first came out in hardcover. It was released as a paperback this year. I met with Richard Harris in a recording studio at New York University. Richard, let's talk about the title of the book because I think that's important to get out of the way. (laughs) This is not a book about dead bodies, although in some ways... Well, yes. Uh, yes, rigor mortis is not about the stiffness that comes with death, but uh, it is a, was for me an irresistible pun. Uh, uh, rigor being what is missing or in short supply in biomedicine right now. And I hasten to say that rigor is not dead in scientific research, but I will say that it is, uh, it is limping along a little bit and it could use a good jolt of energy. Uh, let's talk about what the, what the issues are. Right. Well, there are many issues. Uh, uh, f- depends where you want to start, but we could start talking about the deepest issue, which is I think uh, that there's something amiss with the culture right now in science, in biomedical research in particular. And I think that that culture is being uh, being put into trouble by the funding problems that are facing biomedical research. Uh, the NIH budget doubled between 1993 and 2003. And then Congress said, we've done enough, and they stopped. Uh, they didn't increase it. They didn't decrease it. But, uh, but um, inflation has been eating away at that budget. And between 2003 and 2015, in real spending terms, the amount of money has basically gone down by 20%. And that increase at the beginning is important because they built a huge number of labs. They hired a bunch of people. So there were more mouths to feed, and now there's less and less money to do it. And that has created a hyper-competitive environment. And that's really the back story to this whole book, which is that that pressure, that that search for funding, that that brutal fight for funding uh, it makes people do things that uh, they don't necessarily want to do. People really honestly often have a choice between doing what's best for their career or what's doing best for science. And that's that's a that's a position no one should be in. But that's fundamentally what's going on here. I just want to say because you know, we, we have a wide audience and we mentioned the NIH and we should probably just say what that is and what they do. Sure. The NIH is the National Institutes of Health. They provide about $30 billion a year for, for biomedical research. They are by far the leading uh, federal agency that, that provides research for civilian research in this country, bigger than the National Science Foundation, NASA, all of the rest of those things that you may have heard about. But they... Uh, basically put out grants to universities across the country, uh, to the researchers who are working at those universities. They fund some research on their campus in Bethesda as well. But that is really the backbone of, of funding for biomedical research in this country. And I'm talking here not necessarily about the end stage of drug development because their pharmaceutical companies are uh, – taking the baton, and they actually spend more than the NIH does in drug development issues. But the NIH funds the basic research that goes from just the biology to saying, hey, here's a great idea. This might be something useful as a drug or as a medical advance of some sort. So they are 
they they fund the research that that no one would fund otherwise because it's not obviously profitable. It's exploration. Right. So if you're going to scoop up a bunch of stuff from the bottom of the sea and then screen the compounds, the chemical compounds that you find in there for anything that might look like it has some anti-tumor property, that's the basic research that the NIH might fund. But once you find something that appears to have that kind of property and a pharmaceutical company tries to develop it, that becomes the private stuff. That's correct, yes. Okay, so what is going on in the culture where there's so much fighting for the money that then is doing something harmful to the entire enterprise? Well, let's start with the fact that uh, when people apply for a grant through the NIH, uh, the NIH will only approve uh, 20%. And so that means if you're running a laboratory you have to figure, well, I'm going to have to apply on average for five grants just to get one. And it takes a lot of time to do that. So in the first place, people are spending a huge amount of time writing grants. They may spend more time writing grants than doing research in their laboratory. If you're ahead of a lab, that's probably true. And so the pressure is on. And if you don't get that money, then, you're, then your lab is in trouble. Because uh, back in the day, states like California, New York, Texas, a lot of these states are in Virginia, uh, and so on, funded these fabulous research universities in their states. And gradually over the years, they have been spending less and less money uh, to support the research going on in these universities. So all of a sudden, the federal grants are it. Uh, for in many cases, if you can't get the grant, the university probably doesn't even have money to keep your lab going, at least not, uh, limping along maybe for a year or two. But if you're not raising money, you're out of the business. And so the, so the pressure is absolutely intense. And the result is that people realize that not in order to get grants, they need to do flashy research. They need to have exciting results and they need to publish them in the biggest journals. And that creates an incentive to say, hmm, this result isn't 100% flashy. Maybe it's only 80% flashy. Maybe I can just do a few things. I still think it's a really exciting thing, but maybe if I just you know pretty up the picture or leave out some of the data that doesn't support this idea, that all of a sudden, uh, uh, what starts to happen is the quality of the science starts to erode. And the result is that more what we're seeing is a significant number of studies that get published aren't true. You, you talk in the book about hype words that have proliferated in the last few decades. Yes. There, uh, there was a study done in, uh, in Europe looking at some of these hyperbolic words and these scientists went back and they looked at, they tracked journals, as I recall, from 1974 up into the into the 2000s. And they found that a, a uh, well, they actually used a hype number themselves. They said it was a 15,000% increase instead of 150 times, which is still a big number. But right. they use, but basically these words like, you know, extraordinary, uh, I, um, there's a whole list of them. Novel, novel, first of its kind. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, scientific journals, which you think of as sort of staid uh, places where people don't exaggerate, all of a sudden these words start to proliferate as a way of saying, hey, look at the really exciting study. Uh, look at the really exciting finding I've had here. So you talk about, uh, you mentioned just now the, the problem of research being published and the findings might not necessarily be true. And that gets to this thing that we've really seen a lot of uh, commentary about in the last couple of years, which is what's being called the reproducibility crisis. Right. And uh, I think the key example of that was uh, the drug company Amgen, a guy named Glenn Begley, who was running the cancer research at Amgen, decided, 
when he was sort of ready to move on, that he wanted to go back and sort of open up his file drawers and look back again at a bunch of studies that when they came across the transom in scientific journals, he thought, wow, if these things were real, these could be drug leads for us. And he was very excited about them. He, he picked out 53 studies and he tried to reproduce them. He said, well, took it to his, the researchers in his labs at Amgen and said, see if you can make this work. And then he also, uh, and if they couldn't, he would go back to the original researchers at the labs that did the work and say, we're having trouble reproducing this. Can you help? And very very often they couldn't. And out of those 53, ultimately he was only able to reproduce six, which is what, 11%. Mm -hmm. So that was a red flag that something is, is fundamentally not right, that what's coming out of these research labs at universities uh, basically ends up being dead ends. And when you think about it, this is really where drugs begin. University makes an exciting discovery, a drug company picks it up, obviously they know now that the first thing they need to do is try to reproduce it because if they can't get it to work, uh, then that, that's a dead end right there. But even if they can get it to work, uh, they can, it 90% it, it, of the time or more, those ideas fizzle for one reason or another. Uh, and I talk about those various things in my book. Yeah, you talk about uh, different reasons why things aren't reproducible. And one terrific example was this study on uh, gene activation in Caucasians versus Asian people. Uh, which was done by a Caucasian Asian uh, married couple, married couple, and it turned out it depended on the day of the week that you did the the uh, testing. Right. This was a this is a common phenomenon that has been recently recognized, and it's called the batch effect, where you see a difference between one set of people and another set of people, and you say, "Wow, this is a real difference." And this is and in this case, they tested all the Caucasians on at one point in one set of, of, of test apparatuses. And then actually is, I think, a year or two later, they, they checked the, the other race and they said, oh, look, these don't match up. And so they concluded, oh, Asians and whites are, have like this different, uh, significantly different uh, gene expression, it's called, the genes, which genes are turned on and turned off under certain circumstances. And they, and they published this and, uh, and they said, look, this is, this is big news because it was like 25% difference between these two kinds of genes. Well, other scientists have been looking at these sorts of gene expression stuff too and being careful to test everything on the same chip as opposed to one chip one year and one chip the next. And they found that there were actually smaller differences between Caucasians and Africans. And, and we, the, the understanding is that we are more distant uh, – the, the genetic differences are bigger in that case. So they looked at the Asian studies and said, how could the Asians have more differences than the Africans did? And they, and they went and they determined, well, actually, they discovered that there was this batch effect going on. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing the, uh, about this is they published their finding, not in the same journal where the original findings were published. They, they published their observation as a letter in one of the nature journals. And the scientists who had done the original study said, well, blah, blah, blah. They, they sort of admitted some of their errors, but they sort of were still defensive. And they said, this is still a real thing, that there's genetic differences between whites and Asians, which there are, but it was not nearly as big, mm -hmm. apparently, as they said. And, the, and here, here's the rub, though. Their original paper is still being cited all the time because that – and people don't go and find this discussion elsewhere in the scientific literature to say, oh, you shouldn't really – put too much weight on those findings because uh, we now understand that that was caused by the batch effect. Right. So, so this is how ideas, sort of bad ideas get sort of embedded in the literature and people don't know how to, to, to go find out whether they're still valid or not. If, if I remember right, the original paper was in Nature Genetics 
So uh, just watch out for it if you're in that line of research. Um, let's talk about a couple of the other sources of these problems. You discuss the fact that researchers used to uh, primarily do mouse tests with only male mice. Right. There's actually a couple. There's lots of problems with mice, but uh, but that was one problem that the that the that that the the sex of the mouse, which is just was done for convenience. Uh, probably ended up skewing a lot of those studies. But another problem is that the sex of the mouse handler matters enormously as well. If you're a man and you're handling the mice, you're going to get very different uh, results than if you're a woman handling the mouse. So so basically when you when, – so you ideally would – want to know in your data, it's like the, this mouse was handled by a man, this house, mouse was handled by a woman. I mean, there are, there are, there are so many little subtle differences like that that, that, uh, that really creep into this. I think a, a more fundamental problem with mice is that we have come to assume that they are just basically furry little people. And that could not be farther from the truth. When you think about our, we evolved, you know, we, we have a common ancestor, which probably hundred million years yeah. ago, maybe not quite that long ago, but a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And we've been evolving our own unique uh, ways since then. So if the mice, it's not as though they are like, if you just go back in time, that's what our common ancestor looked like. We've diverted a lot, diverged a lot over the years. And so we're very different. And people all the time make assumptions that if it's, if it's going to work in a mouse, it's going to work in a, in a human. And in fact, that's often not the case. Even quite often, if it works in a mouse, it doesn't even work in a rat. So, mm -hmm. uh, so, so unfortunately, we've built up a whole huge infrastructure around this idea it's understandable because you don't want to test things directly in human beings. You want to start in animals and see what you can learn from animals first. But I think it's actually another reason that there's so much that gets published in the literature that may be reproducible if somebody does it also in mice. But then, it, but then if you try to do it and generalize, uh, it doesn't work out. Of course, we aren't that interested in curing cancer in mice. We basically try to create the cancer in mice before we cure it. So what we really care about is what that means for human beings. And often that's way too big a leap. And it, yeah. Yeah. I, the difference between us and mice, I mean, I can, I can show it right away. If you put a big dollop of peanut butter on uh, a, a surface in a jail cell, I probably won't go in there to get it. But a mouse will almost every time go into the trap that I have at home and try to get that dollop of peanut butter. Um, the, uh, I know that people are going to want to know about the difference in the sex of the handler. Uh, so let's just talk about that for 30 seconds, why that made a difference. Uh, basically, mice respond to the pheromones that, that, that men put out. And in fact, if you take a T-shirt that a man has been wearing and put it in the, uh, the, the cage or put it in the room with a mice, the mice react to it. They react very strongly. It's a, it's a, it's a flight reflex. It's a sense of, of danger for them. And, and it can affect their, their biochemistry, essentially. It can, so, so that's really what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, if, the, if you want to uh, frighten your, your mice, just send men into the room because they're, they're getting the stuff that we waft off of us and, and they know it's bad. <laughs> uh, and let's – we have to talk about HeLa cells because Rebecca Skloot's book. There's a chapter in the book where, you know, 
This stuff that was thought to be a different cell line, no, that was HeLa cells. This other stuff that was thought to be a different cell, no, that was also HeLa cells. Right, yeah. So the story begins uh, back in 1951 when Henrietta Lacks, who's an African-American woman and had uh, cervical cancer, went to the Johns Hopkins Hospital and uh, they tried and failed to treat her cancer, but they did collect some of the cells and uh, the cells became the very first cells that were in a mortal cell line that would grow indefinitely forever in a test tube. And at, when at first they were this great boon to, uh, to biomedical science because all of a sudden you could now grow cancer cells and you could study cancer just by brewing up a batch of cells. And so uh, over the years, they, they were a, a major laboratory tool and have been used all around the world. Uh, but there's a, also a problem with them, which is they grow so well that they outgrow practically any other cell. And if you're not incredibly careful at how you handle your cells, uh, if you're working with three cell lines, probably before you know it, uh, they're all actually HeLa cells. And what has happened over the years is these HeLa cells have become incredible imposters and they've taken over. Uh, they've fooled so many people that there are called all sorts of different cell lines, like Chang liver is a, is a cell line. And if you actually go analyze Chang liver, it's HeLa cells. In fact, there are uh, there's a group that has been trying to pull together a list of, of all of these contaminated cell lines. They found 450 different cell lines that are contaminated cells that are that are not what they are advertised to be. And of those, like 110 or more are HeLa cells. So they are they are imposters run amok everywhere. But there are many, many other cells as well that are also uh, not what they portend to be. And and if you look at, uh, for example, one of the stories I talk about is a is a breast cancer cell line that was isolated in 1976 in Houston. It's been used incredibly wild, widely. And finally, uh, in the year 2000, somebody developed a genetic fingerprinting test to be able to look at the genetics of these things and say, what what is this actually? And it turns out it was a melanoma. And they publish that in the literature. The NIH warns about it because the cell line is one of the 60 top cell lines that people always use. And still, there have been hundreds and hundreds of publications since the year 2000 of this cell line calling it a breast cancer when, in fact, it's a melanoma. And when some of the researchers are confronted with that truth, they contend that, well, the results are still valid. People are many. I think many scientists recognize that this is a problem cell line, and and, uh, and they they steer clear of it if they're aware of it. But it's again, they may not look in the literature to realize. Oh, you mean MDA MB four thirty five isn't a breast cancer cell? It came from a vial that said that. That's what my friends thought. Whatever. Uh, so there are people who still stumble across it accidentally. There are a few people I think who still say I don't believe it, despite the pretty overwhelming science. Uh, old, you know, sometimes. Bad ideas die hard. And if, if somebody's devoted a lot of work, a lot of their career to studying this and calling it a breast cancer, they're very reluctant to say, oh, I was wrong and everything I did in those 10 years was actually a mistake. So, so they're, they're holdouts. In the book you talk about uh, at the formal events at conferences, uh, people might talk about some of the problems uh, like what we're talking about and the audience may be quiet or – or push back a little bit. But then at the bar later, everybody – it reminded me of pilots talking <laughs> about the near near disasters that right. they've had. Yeah. One of these stories comes from uh, Tom Check, who's a Nobel laureate uh, at, in Colorado and uh, at the University of Colorado and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And Tom tells a story about – basically, he's, you know, he's got the chops, right? If, uh, and he says, I can stand up in a, in a in a conference and say, you know, I tried to repeat this and I couldn't get it to, to work. And he'll say, you know, later at the bar, six other people say, 
thank you for saying that because I've been trying all these years, but I don't, you know, I can't, I'm not going to stand up and criticize somebody else because, you know, it could hurt my career. They might review one of my grants one day and so on. So, uh, so absolutely people, you know, they're open secrets in science just the way there are in any other culture. One of my fears, and I think it's very important that this stuff be brought out into the light, but my fear is that politicians who ultimately control the purse strings at the NIH and other funding agencies will try to use this as an excuse to cut funding because they see so much of the funding as wasteful if, it, if this kind of business is going on. That concerns me as well because the pressure is really due to the fact that there's not enough funding to go around as it is. And if you cut the funding, you actually make this underlying problem all that much worse. So you're not actually solving the problem. You, you're exacerbating it. And a couple of weeks before my book came out, uh, the Trump administration did put out a budget plan that was talking about slashing the NIH budget by 18 percent by $6 billion or something like that, which would be devastating. Uh, at least they can't blame my book for, for doing that because they thought of it before the book came right. out. Mm-hmm. But it's a – but it is a it, it is a very serious issue for science because the, what science needs right now is some help. It doesn't need uh, – it doesn't need to be put into a tailspin. And you quote – I believe it's Senator Richard Shelby mm-hmm. from Alabama. Obama, right. who is very careful to say that he would like more funding but is very concerned that this stuff is going to make it harder for the rest of his Senate colleagues to go for it. Right. That was a hearing in 2012, so it's practically ancient history yeah. by now. But uh, but yeah, there is clearly very strong support for biomedical research in Congress. In fact, this past year, Congress gave NIH a big budget boost for the first time in many years. So people care about this because they know this is where advances in medicine come from. And everybody knows somebody who has a medical condition and everyone wants those conditions to be treated and cured. And so there's very strong support for making the NIH work. Uh, My book is not intended to tear the NIH down at all. It's to point out, hey, there are some issues here that deserve some attention. We as taxpayers uh, want to make sure we're getting the most bang for our buck. And the answer is not to give them less money, but to say, look, focus on these issues fix them and everybody wins. So give me some good news. I mean, as a reporter, I often cover a single study and that's that's a dangerous thing to do. So we try to be really careful. Um, give me some good news and tell me that not 90% of the stuff that I look at in journals is actually wrong. Oh, okay. Good news is it's not 90%, but it might be 50% or it could be 60 or 70%. And there was a paper that has come out since my book uh, was was printed uh, and basically some scientists went and they looked at the newspaper database. So my stuff isn't in there. Yours probably isn't yeah. in there. Yeah. You're safe on this one. Right. But they looked at the newspaper databases to follow the coverage of, of major scientific advance, you know, medical advances that got enough, that were interesting enough that they got attention in the media, in newspapers. And they what they did was they followed through and they said, well, how many of these studies do we have more data on now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found 156 studies where enough time had elapsed that there was sort of a scientific verdict about whether or not they were valid studies. And they found that about half of the studies that were reported in the newspaper 
didn't stand up. Mm -hmm. the, the, for, on, upon further analysis, they failed. And two-thirds of the studies that have sort of surprising, this is the first time someone's seen this, and this, of course, draws the attention of reporters like you and me. It's like two-thirds of the time, those studies didn't, didn't mm -hmm. stand up to scrutiny. So it's tough for being a daily news reporter. It's like, how do you deal with this stuff? And I do try to steer away from that. But it's... Uh, but th this is the reality of, of science. And sometimes it's because there's uh, bad methodological problems in these studies. But a certain amount of failure is inevitable in science. Even if you do everything right, if you don't fall into any of the traps that I write about in my book, scientists will still come up with answers that don't stand up. It's just part of science. It's part, you know, that's why it's called experiments, right? Because right. <laughs> we don't know. If we knew the answer, we wouldn't have to do the, 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 the study to begin with. So, but it is very sobering to think about. And I think listeners intuitively know that, well, gee, when they think about particularly nutrition advice, it's like mm -hmm. next week coffee is right. bad for you. Last week it was good for you. People know on one plane that, you know, a lot of these ideas are really in play. And, uh, I, but I think it's deeper than than people recognize, and that there, certainly there have been medical advances that have been used on many many people that have turned out to be quite harmful. Early studies suggested it was a good idea. Careful studies later on showed that it was actually causing, for example, hormone replacement therapy in right. postmenopausal women was killing thousands of women from breast cancer and heart disease. When early studies said, "Hey, this is good for you." Yeah. One of my other concerns, and again, this is in no way trying to say we shouldn't try to fix these problems, is not just that the Congress won't fund the agencies, but that the anti-science people out there, the, the people who want to promote uh, creationism in public schools or want to say that uh, climate change is not understood, will – uh, grab this material and say, see, the scientists don't know what they're doing. Nobody really knows what they're doing. It, it, they say this this week and next week they'll say the other thing. Well, my experience is uh, that people compartmentalize a lot and you cannot believe in evolution, but you darn well do believe in antibiotics. Uh, and I think that that in the same is true with cl with climate science. People may be dismissive of climate science, but they accept a lot of other scientific ideas. They will vaccinate their children and so on. So, no, so I don't. Of, some of them will. Well, it's a. I think it's a different. Yeah. I think the climate deniers are a different group of people than the vaccine uh, anti-vaccine mm -hmm. crowd. It's uh, it's actually generally speaking opposite ends of the political spectrum. The con people who are more conservative are more likely to be climate deniers. People who are ultra liberal are more likely to be the anti-vaxxers. So there's not there's not one big pool of people who say I just completely distrust science. People pick and choose what to trust and what not to trust based on on their life experience and what they bring to it and how they were brought up and so on. And you know that's human nature. But I don't I don't necessarily think that people are going to say let's stop trying to understand biology let's let's try to stop the advancement of medicine because everyone knows that at some point in their life they're going to have or many of them will have some sort of medical issue if it's not heart disease or cancer or ALS or something Alzheimer's disease uh, that you know they're going to say well what can you do for me and they have to think that hey this is where it starts mm -hmm. and and they should be thinking we want we want to make this process work better so that you know so we don't have to wait decades and decades to figure out Alzheimer's, which, you know, so far that we, we've been spinning our wheels on Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. And 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 I think, I mean, it's a really hard problem to solve. But I also think part of that is due to the fact that 
people relied really heavily on mouse studies for Alzheimer's. And, and, and I think people have been misled uh, by, by some of the things I write about in the book. Um, the, the book talks about biomedical research. To your knowledge, uh, do these problems plague any other area? I mean, are theoretical physicists bothered by these same things? Well, that's interesting. The theoretical physicists, uh, I they've think got their own set of problems. Yeah, they do. But but I mean, if you look at the uh, the search for the Higgs boson in in Switzerland, right, which was this huge, enormous, multi billion dollar project, you know what they did? Uh, they when they built that the machine to look for the Higgs boson, they didn't just put one detector in that machine to look for it. They put two detectors on completely different designs to do it. So they were thinking very much about exactly these problems, and they were saying. We want to make sure we're not being fooled by something that we did in in one. So, it, it, you know, with one technology. So, so they are highly confident because they have baked into their experiment the knowledge that there's lots of ways to get uh, to get misled, and and they're working really hard to avoid that. But that said, there are many other areas of science where uh, where these problems exist, and psychology is a classic uh, example of that. There were uh, there was a fairly well-known uh, attempt to reproduce 100 psychology papers not so long ago, and many of those could not be reproduced. So, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, this, this is part and parcel of science. And the reason that's the case, actually, is when you think about it, um, uh, well, I'm going to quote uh, uh, Richard Feynman, the, the, the famous physicist who uh, was at Caltech, and he gave a Caltech commencement speech one year, and he said, uh, the whole trick about science is, you know, it's a method to make sure you don't fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And that's absolutely true. Demosthenes said something like that third century BC as a matter of fact. But uh, uh, this, is, this is the fundamental issue of science. It's a method to make sure that you're not saying, oh, that's a great idea and you get deluded by your own – you fall in love with your own ideas. Sure. So, so that, that happens uh, – this is a, a trait of human nature. So any scientist will experience that. Different fields have different ways of trying to reduce the, the chances of that happening. But, you know, it's, it's why science is imperfect. But it also makes it – it's, you know, why it's – let's for, remember it's a human endeavor and it's a really interesting human endeavor. Absolutely. I think when Demosthenes said it, he had marbles in his mouth though. So, But let me, let me ask you <laughs> – So uh, I could be misquoting him. <laughs> well, well, not to mention it was a whole different language. But let's talk about a prescription from you on – what to do other than let's double the NIH's funding so that many more grants can be funded. Let's talk about what – you know, the first thing you said was we have a problem in the culture. And obviously, we're not talking about cell culture. We have problems there too. But the culture of science as it is currently done in this country at any rate and in most places that have a state funding setup, you know, so what do we do about it? Well, there are many ways you can attack this problem and people have been thinking about those. I think one thing you can do is you can uh, ask the deans who make the hiring decisions at universities to think more carefully about how they make those judgments. Because right now what happens is they say, how many papers have you published and how many big journals have you published them? And this is a part of that incentive system that that is driven by funding shortage, in, but it's also driven by the way that science operates right now. And, and so if you're a scientist, you say, I've got to get as many papers as I can and I've got to get as many flashy papers as I can. And the, actually the ramifications of having a flashy paper that turn out to be, turns out to be wrong, not that big a deal. Uh, what the dean should be asking scientists is give me your two or three really best ideas and show me how well developed they are because once you get past that one flashy idea, 
where's it going? Take take me there. And so, that, so I mean, that's one thing that 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 deans of universities could do to 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 help tweak this problem. I think another thing that that would help a lot is to increase the transparency in science. And uh, this is a a struggle in uh, throughout this area of biomedicine as well as it is, is is in 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 true medical research with human beings. But basically, scientists don't necessarily uh, exactly explain how they did the experiment. They don't put their, if there's a computer code that helps people uh, understand how they had analyzed their data, they don't necessarily make that public. They don't necessarily make their raw data public. A lot of this stuff happens behind sort of uh, uh, behind the glass. And, and they put out their paper and they say, here's my exciting results. I'm not telling you exactly how I got there, but these are really exciting results, believe you me. If scientists had to be more transparent about that, if they had to put their data out, they had to put their their methods out and make their ingredients available to other scientists, if they actually put their computer codes online, which is easy to do, and let other people run the same numbers to the extent that there's an analytical part of this, uh, I think two very important things would happen. One of which is that very quickly people would be able to take an exciting result and say, I'm going to try to verify this. And it won't take years and years and it won't sort of drift around in the literature or something that may or may not be true and very different people have different ideas. You can, tr you can very quickly troubleshoot stuff. And if, something is, if there's something wrong, you bring that out. Science wins. Everybody wins except maybe the guy who published the paper or woman who published the paper to begin with and might feel a little bit embarrassed about it. But that's a really important role uh, that could happen. The other important thing is if you know that that's what's going to happen, maybe you'll be a little more careful with how you, you know, analyze stuff, how you, you know, if you're excluding data and you're, you have to maybe be, do a little bit better job of saying, oh, I, I, I left out that data because it didn't because it undercut my argument, uh, as opposed to I left out that data because I know that there was something wrong with the machine that day, uh, and so so I think that transparency is another really important thing. And and this is not an idea that comes from me. There are people like Brian Nosek, who's at the Center for Open Science in Charlottesville, Virginia, who's been pushing on this idea very hard, and there are others as well. And I think that that's I think that uh, of all the sort of easy to describe solutions, I think that that one would go a long way. Anything else? Well, I think scientists could also take a lot more care with the ingredients they use. I mean, we talked about cell cultures earlier. Uh, many of those contaminated cells, you can send off any cell you want and and very quickly get a, a cheap test that'll tell you, oh, this is actually what you think it is or it's not. It's been contaminated in the process of your experiment or you started out with something that isn't right. So actually, the NIH is now requiring people to put in their research proposals that we, I'm going to get my cells authenticated. Uh, that was that was became sort of new regulation as of January of 2016. It's too early to see exactly how that's panning out, what what penalty people will get for not doing it, how thoroughly people are being checked. So, but I think that's a very helpful thing. The NIH actually, to its credit, has not shied away from these problems. You might think that the, that this agency might try to sweep it under the rug. Uh, but to his credit, Francis Collins, who is the director of the NIH, w went in front of Senator Shelby in 2012 and said, you're right, this is a problem and we intend to deal with it. And he's he's taken other steps like to make sure you get the sex of your mice right in in experiments and and basic things like that. So, so there are little things you can do, there are medium things you can do, there are big things you can do. Obviously, the fundamental problem of the funding imbalance is not an easy thing to solve. Even increasing the budget by 5% per year from now on into the future really won't make up for the fact 
uh, that the funding is out of whack. So I think that even people in science who are used to saying, oh, we need more money, recognize that that's, in this case, things are so far out of line that that won't solve this problem. And so they need to think about other solutions as well. They've tried to have those conversations. Uh, they There's a there's sort of a, a group of elder statesmen and stateswomen of science who are working on this, and uh, and they're finding it really hard. They're not really making a lot of progress, but that, but they realize that this is the nub of the problem, and they got to take it seriously. So, if you write a sequel in ten years, are you optimistic? Will it be called Rigor Vita? Or <laughs> <laughs> ooh, I should write that down. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I actually think that. Um, Recognizing a problem is is the most important step in solving it. And I think the scientific community is increasingly realizing that this is a real problem, that they need to address it, and they're thinking about how to do that. So, so I am optimistic. I think, will these problems persist? Some of them, absolutely. Will science fail? For, for the entire, you know, as long as the universe is going on, science will sometimes fail. But, you know, we should embrace that. We should not chastise scientists for making a mistake or for, for putting forward something that turns out to be wrong. I mean, it's all part of the, you know, it's all part of the process of exploring the edges of knowledge, which is what they're doing. And we should be grateful they're doing that. But we should also, you know, make sure that, you know, if they're, if they're doing things that are not helpful, let's, let's, let's also surface that and find ways of dealing with that. What's the line? If I were, if I knew what I was doing, it wouldn't be research. <laughs> That's right. Yes. The Demosthenes quote translates to, "The easiest thing of all is to deceive oneself, for what a man wishes, he generally believes to be true." That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website www.scientificamerican.com where you can also check out our new web publication, Scientific American Space and Physics. Select articles from Scientific American and from the journal Nature bring you recent developments in everything from particle physics to cosmology, and from time to time, time. To access issues, look for the store menu item on our website. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Bye.